Uh, as has been mentioned, we're beginning a new series. This is the start of our series in Matthew. And this week, your life groups will be getting together. If you're not yet connected to the one you were with before, or you didn't really like that one and you're looking for a new one, this is the week to make the change. And uh, there's an insert in your bulletin. There will be an insert each week for life group lessons. And this week, I kind of went easy on you because this week is mainly going to be about just getting together, having some food, catching up on everything that's gone on lately over the summer. And uh, this is sort of an introductory message on Matthew. And then next week, we'll basically be in full, full-on life group mode. And uh, so this is your chance to get together and uh, just kick things off. Now, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew comes first in the New Testament even though it probably wasn't written first. It's probably not the earliest gospel, um, but it became very quickly the most popular gospel in the early church. And even though the actual author of the gospel isn't mentioned, there's never been any question that Matthew wrote this gospel. From the earliest times of the first century, uh, the earliest communications of the, of the first century church, everybody connected this gospel to Matthew. Everybody knew that Matthew wrote this. And uh, it was very popular. I think it was probably the most popular gospel because it's the gospel that connects the most often to the Old Testament. And the church expanded very rapidly uh, in the Jewish culture around Jerusalem uh, at first. And so the Jewish Christians and the Jews were looking for the connection between the New Covenant and Jesus and the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And Matthew does that. It, it makes the closest connection to the Old Testament. And it's important that we know the Old Testament. It's important that we know the books of Moses. It's important that we know the prophets and we know the whole counsel of Scripture in order to see God most clearly in Jesus when we get to the New Testament and we can delight and benefit from the New Testament better. And so as an introduction to Matthew, just before we get into it, um, I'm actually going to back up and we're going to look at um, Malachi 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. And that will prepare the way, I think, for the first verse of Matthew. Let me just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this opportunity to study this gospel of Matthew. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, our ears would be opened, our hearts would be softened, and that we would see clearly uh, through new eyes, spiritual eyes, the beauty of your Son and what you intend to teach us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you go... If you're at Matthew, which you can turn to Matthew if you want, and then just go back one page probably in your Bible, uh, you get to Malachi, uh, the final prophet of the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read Malachi 4, 1 to 6. And uh, it's not going to sound like a Thanksgiving message, but we will get there, okay? Malachi 4 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So, like I said, not really a Thanksgiving message there, really. Uh, Malachi is the final prophet. And you'll remember in the Old Testament, just to make the connection, uh, the nation of Israel rose and it was sort of at its zenith with David and Solomon. And then the nation of Israel fell and it went into exile and captivity. And then there was a return from exile, but Israel never really seemed to rise again. In the final few prophets of the Old Testament, we hear very little for them to rejoice in. Jerusalem is repopulated, but it's a shadow of its former self. A second temple is rebuilt, but those that remember Solomon's first temple actually weep at the sight of the finished second temple because it does not compare. And God has not given them any new king in the line of David. They haven't given them any new king at all. They are a people that are under foreign control this whole time. The priests and the Levites are not teaching the people profitly, properly. That's a lot of what the final prophets are talking about is the failure of the priests and the Levites to be faithful. And they're not worshiping properly. At one point, God just says, I just wish you'd close the doors of my temple and stop. And then we have these final six verses of Malachi, which sets the stage for another, after these verses, another 400 years of waiting, 400 years of silence or of exile, so to speak, waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a day of the Lord to lead them out again. And so this creates an anticipation. All through the Old Testament, these sort of messianic prophecies create an anticipation for the one who is going to come and finally get Israel out of this sort of mess that they're in. They're going to finally be set free. And then if you think about the time period around 0 to 30 AD, the anticipation of a messianic person in the minds of the Jewish people is actually heightened right about that time, those decades. The timing of Daniel, and we're going to go back to Daniel really quickly to see this, the timing of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, probably increased the messianic expectation right at the end of, or at the beginning of the first century. In Daniel 9, 24 to 26, he receives this prophecy. Seventy-sevens, or weeks, are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we have a point in time, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. See, happy Thanksgiving. I'm getting there. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm getting there. Trust me. But you see why anticipation would be heightened because if you take seven years or seven weeks of years and 62, you have 69 weeks of years or 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the anointed one being put to death. And that date actually arrives very close to the timing of the crucifixion. I mean, there's some question about exact years by three, four, five years of variance in there. But it's certainly within the range of possible dates. It's certainly within one seven-year period or one week, the 70th week. And so if you were a 
person like Daniel or like a faithful Jew who was reading the Old Testament knew about this prophecy and you had counted the years and it had been 480 some years, then there's this anticipation that the Messiah is coming. It's got to be close. We're nearly there. And then after that final prophecy of Malachi, these 400 years of silence, you can imagine 400 years of silence from God after over 2,000 years of revelation. 400 years where these scribes and Pharisees and faithful Israelites would be studying the very last prophetic words that were written and they are looking forward to the promised Messiah and they are counting the years described by Daniel's. And if you were actually now to go and read the Dead Sea Scrolls, they preserve for us a pretty amazing description of one highly dedicated and very strictly religious sect of the Jewish people, the Qumran community. And the Dead Sea Scrolls describe in the writings of this Qumran community the expectation that they had coming very soon of two anointed ones. They were expecting a Davidic ruler and they were expecting a priest who rivaled his status. They were not expecting those two promises to be fulfilled in one. But after Daniel and after Malachi and 400 years of silence and expectation, then you come to the first sentence of the New Testament. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're just going to talk about Matthew 1.1. One verse. It's going to be a long series. Um, No. In Matthew 1.1, we have anticipation realized. The very first verse says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we're going to unpack that verse in a minute and some of what it means. But first, I'm just going to give you a little overview of Matthew. So Matthew is a gospel. And a gospel is a historical narrative. It's not a videotape as we often think of history these days. It's not a video accurate chronological recording of what happened in history. Um, Matthew is selecting and he's selective of what he recounts and how he orders what he actually saw and heard from Jesus. It's not that he's rewriting history in his narrative or inventing the teachings. He's selecting the events and the teaching that best reach his intended audience. As anyone does when they communicate, when you set out to write a letter or you set out to tell a story, you have some meaning that you're trying to communicate to the audience and you are selecting what you're choosing to say to get your meaning across. And that's what Matthew is doing. That's what the Gospels do. The the Gospels are purposeful. And it's one of the reasons that we have four Gospels recounting the same events from the people who saw them or were immediate witnesses to the people who could recount them. For instance, the Gospel of John emphasizes the Son of God, and Mark emphasizes the suffering servant of Jesus, and then Matthew emphasizes the Messianic King. And so as you go through Matthew, you're getting the account from Matthew, who was there with Jesus, selecting the times and the incidents and the teachings of Jesus that emphasize his purpose of describing the Messianic King. And there's five clear sections of teaching that Matthew stitches together as he writes, and they're delineated by the discourses of Jesus. And you'll see this verse in the Gospel of Matthew repeated several times. When Jesus had finished this teaching or this sermon, or when Jesus had finished these parables, it's in 728, 11.1, 13.53, 19.1, and 26.1, this repetition that Matthew says, when this had been finished, then we did this. And so there's five sections. 
where Matthew is intentionally creating a portrait of Jesus. Now, he has a specific purpose and themes in his gospel, and I just want to quickly lay out these themes before we get into that first verse again. Matthew is speaking primarily to Jewish Christians and to Jews. He is trying to connect the new covenant to the old. He's prophetically identifying Jesus to do that. There's 12 other times in Matthew where you'll see the phrase repeated, to fulfill the scripture. Jesus did this in order to fulfill the scripture or to fulfill the prophecy or to fulfill what was written. Twelve times Matthew makes this connection of what Jesus is doing to the old covenant. He's establishing Jesus' identity as the seed of promise and as an eternal king. He is getting across the authority and the judgment that comes along with that kingship and that resides in Jesus. He's inaugurating the new kingdom of heaven. Fifty-six times in the Gospel of Matthew, far more than any other Gospel, he refers to the kingdom. And 30 of those times, he refers to the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew is the only one who uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Everyone else says kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven is Matthew's phrase for, for it. So 56 times he talks about the kingdom. So you are going to pick up on recurring themes of Messiah, Old Testament, prophecy, king and kingdom over and over and over again and then he's another theme with these five teachings is he's trying to explain how we are now to live as citizens in this new kingdom under this king and finally there's probably more themes but the ones i picked out was the mission of the kingdom to gentiles you'll see that clearly that matthew has a desire to see this kingdom on mission to reach the world so those, that's Matthew. That's, that's the type of text it is. That's what Matthew's doing. That's who he's writing to. So now let's just see how all of this sort of starts off right away where these themes come from, looking again at the very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so it starts off right away. It says, this is the book of the Genesis, or this is the account of the beginning. And then we get four identifications of who this book is about in the first sentence. The first one is Jesus. And so let's look at these. The name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. So if you're wondering, and I often wondered this, how come nobody's ever called Jesus anymore? Like that's, everybody uses all these popular biblical names, but I've never heard anybody called Jesus. Well, everybody named Joshua is actually using the anglicized Hebrew name that would be Yeshua, which means God saves, right? And so right away, the linkage to the Old Testament begins. You remember that Joshua was the leader appointed by God to lead his people out of the physical wilderness into the physical promised land. And now Matthew is introducing Jesus, a new Joshua, who is here and come to lead his people out of 400 years of silence and out of the wilderness of their sin into a new eternal and spiritual promised land, a new kingdom. This new Joshua, a better Joshua, has arrived to save them. Just a few verses down in verse 21, when the angel comes to Joseph in a dream, the angel says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So even though Matthew knows his mostly Jewish readers will understand this, 
They'll realize that this Joshua is a new savior that's going to lead them into the promised land. He doesn't want to just let that name stand entirely on its own. He's pretty excited about what's going to unfold for us. And so he spells it out a little more as we keep going. He says this Joshua or Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. This literally means the anointed one. It's not his last name. And you think that's kind of funny today, but actually early Greek people who first heard about Jesus thought Christ was his last name, Jesus Christ. So when you're reading Jesus Christ in your head, it's helpful maybe to insert the between the words. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And we could go into a lot of detail about the significance of anointed. We could talk about how the high priest um, had oil poured over them and the oil being the symbol of the Holy Spirit. We could talk about how anointing itself, the act of anointing was a kingly or a priestly function like Elijah's anointing of Haziel and Jehu. But I just want to consider Jesus as the promised Messiah from one text in Isaiah. And the anointing that comes with Jesus being named the Christ or being named the Messiah. And remember, Matthew is always revealing Jesus in light of the Old Testament and in, in light of the Old Covenant promise. And so in Isaiah 11, 1-5, this is what we read. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit... And the anointing, the oil is the symbol of the spirit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist." And so here in Isaiah, we have this prophetic looking forward to the Messiah. Jesus is this one who is anointed with the spirit of Yahweh or the spirit of Jehovah. He's anointed with wisdom and he's anointed with understanding and he's anointed with counsel and might and he's anointed with knowledge and fear or awe of God and he won't operate by human means. He says he won't judge by what he sees or what he hears. He's he's not going to judge by any human standards, but he's going to judge by righteousness with both compassion and with judgment. And that second part is an important theme here in Matthew. You see, it says that he is going to, uh, how did Isaiah put it? He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And you remember, I said, a big part of Matthew is these five teaching discourses of Jesus. So he is coming not to judge with a rod. He is not coming to slay with a sword. He is coming to slay with his lips. It'll be by his teaching that he judges the earth. And so Matthew isn't sure that we have it yet, so he drops two more identifications on Jesus. He says he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's a better Joshua who's going to lead his people into a new promised land, a new kingdom. He's the anointed one who has all this anointing that Isaiah talked about. But he's also the son of David and the son of Abraham. And I'm just going to do those in the other order, the reverse order, so they're chronological for us. He's the son of Abraham. And by saying this, Matthew again drags us back to the old covenant and he underlines that Jesus, the Messiah, is the seed or is the offspring promised to Abraham. In Genesis 12, we find God's initial promise to the father of all of Israel. 
that he would bear a son and from that son would come an offspring or would come a seed that would bless all the nations. It's in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. I'll just read it for you. It says, The Lord said to Abram, who will later be called Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Matthew takes us all the way back to Abraham and says, this is now starting to happen. This is called the Abrahamic Covenant. God's going to form a covenant people. He's going to give them a special place on the earth. Through them, God will accomplish a global purpose among all people. In chapter 17 of Genesis, God promises that Abraham and Sarah's children will lead nations and will lead to kings. Kings of people will come from her, he says in verse 16. And then right at the very end of Genesis in chapter 49, and we talked about this a couple of months ago in the summer series, we learn that it's from the line of Judah specifically that the line of kings will come and will never depart from that lineage until a promised one whom the nations, not just Israel, will obey. I'll just remind you. Because that was a long time ago. Genesis 49.10, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's been the sons of promise so far. And then Jacob gives this blessing to Judah. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So God says there's going to be a line of kings from Judah, from his tribe, his sons, and they will always be kings. And they are sort of safeguarding or they are sort of temporarily holding the throne until he to whom it belongs shall come. Now remember, this is 2,000 years before Jesus shows up, okay? This is six or 700 years before a king even comes to Israel that this is said. And Jacob basically says, Judah's line is going to have all the kings and they're just safeguarding this kingship. They're just guarding this throne. They're just holding this throne temporarily until the one to whom it really belongs shows up. So you can see where all the messianic anticipation is coming from among the Jewish people. They, they knew this stuff literally by heart and they'd been waiting for this one to whom the throne belongs to for 2,000 years. They know whose lineage he would come from and who was holding the throne for him. They didn't need to be told. But when we Gentiles are kind of out of the loop, and so Matthew has already sort of tipped us off about where this all comes from and who this line is, and all of his readers would know it, but we need to be caught up. And so he says he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham and all that Abrahamic covenant promise, but he's also the son of David. The David, King David who was also a son of Abraham, who was from the tribe of Judah, exactly as prophesied. And David's line never gave up the throne. If we go back to 2 Samuel 7, because I just want to sort of tie the knot on this, you hear Nathan's recounting of the covenant to David. And he explains about David's rule on the throne. And, and it's at the time when David wanted to build a temple for God. And God's response to David when he wants to build the temple, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now at that point, he's talking about 
Solomon, right? David didn't build the temple. Solomon built the temple. So he says, I'm going to raise up one after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He's not going to establish it. I will establish it. He's the one who's going to build a house in my name. Solomon did that. But he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And these verses form at the end of what's known as the Davidic covenant. And God renews his promise of land and nation and blessing. And he adds to David, your son's going to succeed me. He's going to build a temple and his reign will never end. His throne will never end. I'm going to be the architect of his kingdom. And even though he sins, I'm going to discipline him. And by the way, this is going to go on forever. And then we see this promise confirmed again in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so... Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Judah, Jesse is the father of David, David, Solomon. This kingship is established. Matthew's underlining the identity of Jesus for his Jewish readers and for us. He's saying God's salvation, the anointed Messiah has come, the promised seed and the offspring of Abraham, the eternal king of the throne of David. This king is going to inaugurate and rule over a new kingdom that supersedes all other kings and kingdoms and he is going to judge the needy with justice and his words are going to slay the wicked. If we were to go back, Malachi would say it something like this. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. That's how Malachi saw it. He said, there's there's a time coming when you who love the Lord are going to rejoice and everyone who is rebellious to the Lord is going to be destroyed. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus, this promised Messiah, this son and this king, is the inaugurator of a new kingdom. He's overturning the existing order. He's a better Joshua. He's a, he's a new David. He's a better David. You see, that, that prophecy of Solomon, if we were to look around today, we would think it failed. You know, after the final king, there, there were no more kings of Israel. And so we would think that that promise failed unless Jesus was who he said he was. He came to establish something new. He came to overthrow the religious order and to overthrow the governing order. The Jesus of Matthew in the Gospels is nothing all like modern attempts of creating a safe Jesus who was not God incarnate, but simply a kind of moral teacher. John Meyer wrote a book called a marginal Jesus and he, he just his quote is so perfect for the way people try to present Jesus in, in sort of a historical sense today he called him a tweedy potaster who spent his time spinning out parables and Japanese cones a literary athlete, athlete who toyed with first century deconstructionism or a bland Jesus who simply told people to look at the lilies of the field such a Jesus would threaten no one just as the university professors who create him threaten no one. Just found that quote amazing. A tweedy potaster. I had to look that one up. A potaster is a writer of shoddy poetry, in case you were wondering. 
So he says, this is what we try to make Jesus today. Matthew will have none of that. In the very first verse of his gospel, he describes Jesus in wholly different terms. A harmless Jesus like that could never have gotten himself crucified. Jesus was nailed to a cross because those who held power in the temple and the state understood exactly the message of freedom he was proclaiming and the power that was behind it. Jesus' teaching is supremely authoritative precisely because he is the rightful ruler of Israel. He is God's Messiah. And that's what we're going to see unpacked in the Gospel of Matthew. So you say, so what? What does this mean for us? Specifically, perhaps today, what is this about this first verse of Matthew that would cause us to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving weekend? And I just sort of thought of, how many did I have here? Five quick things of what we can be thankful for because of how Matthew has introduced Jesus to us. First of all, our faith is rooted in history. And we can, and we will later on, look at the genealogy that's coming. Our faith is rooted in a historical person. It's rooted in a historical context. It's rooted in history. Our faith is not misplaced. God is trustworthy. Jesus is exactly who we need, arriving exactly when we needed him. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then the Old Testament and Judaism and all of the scripture is just another old religious text, just as speculative as any other. There would be no reason to put any faith in the Old Testament and any of God's promises unless it's proved itself in the promised Messiah. But it did prove itself in the promised Messiah. And that makes it different than everything else. Our faith is not misplaced. Thirdly, God is merciful. The new covenant is the gracious answer to the law. God sent a new Elijah, who we'll see in detail next week, to herald the coming of a Messiah. And remember what he said at the end of Malachi there. He said he's sending this son of righteousness, so that I will not come and smite. Jesus is God's gracious alternative to the consequences of the law that we would all suffer apart from. At the, at the end of Malachi, God was pretty much fed up with his people. He, he just stopped talking to them for 400 years. And, and, and almost the last sentence that he speaks is he says, I'm going to send someone so that I won't smite and destroy you. The Messiah has come from grace, out of grace on God's part to set us free from the law and to withhold his judgment. And fourthly, we are included. Through the Messiah, all the nations will be blessed. Even though this gospel is written specifically to Jews and to Jewish Christians, the one clear message of Matthew is that we will see it in the theme of Gentile inclusion of global or national inclusion. We see it even of Gentile mission. The culminating call of Matthew, you know it so well, is in chapter 28, 19, when Matthew says, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. So we can be thankful that this is an inclusive, that we are included in this. And then fifthly, we have a superior king and kingdom. Jesus, through the inspired word of Matthew, is going to teach us how to participate fully in this kingdom. So when you just look at this first verse of Matthew, that this is going to be the book of the Genesis or the book of beginnings of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is underlining, 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 underlining. There's a better Joshua. There's a better David. 
There is an anointed one. There is a seed and an offspring, a child of promise. There is a king in the Davidic line who is going to sit on his throne forever. And I am about to tell you the book of his beginnings. That's it. That's what that first sentence is all about. And as we go forward, we have so much to be thankful for because as you unpack each identity of Jesus along the way, we learn that we are included in this. This is good news. This is great news. We're not still waiting for a promise. The promise has come and we're included and it's the gospel mission for the whole world to include everyone. I can't think of anything more thankful of on Thanksgiving Day than that we have Jesus for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, this morning is really just the tip of the iceberg. It's just a taste of what is to come in Matthew. I am so thankful that your servant took the time to sit down under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit and pour out his heart to say, this is the Jesus I knew. Let me write the book of his beginnings when I knew him. Let me write the book that explains who he is, why he's come, what he's teaching, the kingdom he's inaugurating, the king that he is, the Messiah. And Father, we just have this incredible privilege in community to learn together. So I pray that in the weeks ahead, this this identity of Jesus will be made so real to us and we will understand how the timing is perfect, his coming is perfect, his teaching is perfect. He is perfect. He is the answer that we need. Father, it's incredible to think for all the years of anticipation that people were waiting, that at the right time, at the right moment, your son came. Didn't come for them, but came for the whole world, and that includes us. And for that, we give you thanks this morning. In Christ's name, amen.